Esther 2.19 through 3.11. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Tirish, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the, to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kyle. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to see you. I think I started losing my voice this afternoon. My voice was squeaking. I think I just did it. My voice was squeaking when I was ordering coffee on the way here in the breeze. It was just looking at me funny. So that happens. Let's just roll with it. Okay. Um, if you're new, joining us for the first time, uh, a warm welcome to you. My name's Steve, one of the pastors here, and we're walking through the book of Esther. This is our second week. It'll be a six-part series. And anytime you go through a book of the Bible, whether it's a sermon series or if you're just reading it on your own, a good practice is to think, you know, what's the one thing I'm going to remember about this book uh, 10 years from now? And what we're saying is the main theme of Esther is God's silent sovereignty. That's why it's on the title page up there, Silent Sovereignty. And we see this because in Esther, God isn't mentioned once. You never see him. There's not a peep from God. And yet God is the hidden hero of the story. And what this shows us is oftentimes in your life, when God feels most absent or most silent, it doesn't mean he's abandoned you. And in fact, he's present with you and is holding true to his promises. And so that's what Esther is about. And so today we're going to look at this theme of God's silent sovereignty with you uh, along the vein of opposition, opposition. So when people oppose you, and you'll see what we mean once we get into it, when you face opposition, how does God's silent sovereignty help you respond? Okay, and so we'll look at this under three headings. First, we'll look at opposition then in the story. 
opposition now, and then how do we respond uh, in light of God's silent sovereignty in, in opposition today? So uh, what did opposition look like then in Esther? What does opposition toward God's people look like today? And then how do we respond uh, in light of that and God's silent sovereignty with us? Okay, so first number one, um, opposition then. So we'll start here in chapter 2, verse 19. We're just going to do a quick summary of this passage. So I think the, the lights turn on the stage and you find yourself in the most powerful empire of the time. This is 480 BC about the Persian Empire. And what we saw last week is... Uh, the queen, Vashti, she snubbed her husband, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes is what we'll call him. That's his Greek name. So the king deposes Vashti, and then he holds a—we have some younger people here— he holds a not PG-related contest uh, to choose his next queen. So Esther, who's one of God's covenant people, she wins this contest and becomes the queen. So now here in uh, the end of chapter 2, what you see is Esther's cousin, Mordecai, he's posted at the king's gate— uh, you can think that's basically synonymous with he's posted at the White House. Okay, so it's, this isn't, he's not far away from the palace. I mean, he's a civil servant, up close and personal with people coming and going. And Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai uses his connection with Esther to tell the king, hey, there's people plotting to kill you. The king investigates it. Turns out to be true. They hang the individuals who are conspira- um, who are conspirators. And then it says uh, at the end of verse 23, and it, i.e. Mordecai saving the king's life, it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. That looks trivial, uh, but just hang on to that uh, because in the week's head we'll see even the world as we know it today wouldn't look as it does if that doesn't happen. Okay, Mordecai saving the king recorded in the book of the Chronicles. So then we move into chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted... And you would think it says promoted Mordecai. I mean, the only reason the king still has a pulse is because of Mordecai. But it says he promotes Haman instead. And so up until now, the king has been ruling largely through councils. Now he divests all power into the hands of one individual. Maybe because of the assassination plot, he feels like he needs to tighten up on some things. And you know this guy Haman must be insufferable. And one of the reasons you know this is because... You see later in verse 2, people bowed down to Haman for the king commanded them to. And this is a more traditional culture, shame and honor culture. It's just standard to bow in deference to your elders, people in authority. It's just what people do. So if the king has to command people to bow, you know this guy must be a pretty intolerable fellow. And so Haman's walking through the street, prating himself, and everyone's bowing except one. This guy, Mordecai, Esther's cousin. And like anyone with a fragile ego, Haman can't stand the fact that someone doesn't like him. So what do we see in verse 6? But he disdained delay, he, Haman, disdained delay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they'd made known to him the people of Mordecai, i.e. that Mordecai was a Jew, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai. Seems like an overreaction, Yes. And we'll see why in a little bit. So then in verse 7 through 11, in summary, Haman goes to the king, and through a shrewd combo of have-truths and lies, he convinces the king that the Jews are dangerous, they're a threat to the empire, convinces Xerxes to get on board with his plan to kill all the Jews in the empire. So then you can skip down to verse 13. This is the result of Haman's plot. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, 
and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month. It's dark stuff. And this would effectively, if they're successful, it's going to eliminate every Jewish person on the face of the earth because that's where they're all displaced within the Persian Empire. And so you have to ask, why this gruesome overreach of power just because one guy snubs you? <laughs> you know, like even some of the most wicked people you know, right, or have heard of wouldn't do something like this. And we see the answer. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. So if you're an ancient Israelite reading this, you see that and you go, oh. So 600 years before this, uh, you had this guy named King Agag. He was the king of the Amalekites. And you can read about this in 1 Samuel 15. There is a battle between King Saul the first king of Israel, and King Agag of the Amalekites. So Haman is in the line of Agag. Saul, we're told in, in 1 Samuel, is a son of Kish. Who else in Esther is in the line of Kish? Oh, Mordecai. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 5. Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite. So if you know the, the parallel family histories, immediately you go, oh, there's bad blood here. And not too different where, you know, if you've read Harry Potter, um, hopefully you have, when Ron Weasley gets on the train to Hogwarts and he meets Draco Malfoy for the first time, you know there's going to be bad blood and hostility, right? Because Draco Malfoy's parents hate Ron Weasley's parents. So you know that's probably going to extend to their children. That's pretty similar to what's going on here. But this ancient hostility goes back further than King Agag and King Saul. If you go back even further, in Deuteronomy 25, you can read about how when God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, is they're on their way to the promised land, the Amalekites, same people that King Agag came through, same people that Haman has come through, um, they're a group with no scruples, no moral compass, and so what they do is they attack and slaughter the Israelites in the back of the caravan, the sick, the women, the elderly, people who can't keep up. And so that's why in 1 Samuel 15, God tells Saul, you need to wipe out the Amalekites because they're just an evil per people. They can't be reasoned with. And yet this ancient hostility goes back even further. And it goes all the way back to, if you read Genesis 3, you'll find through Genesis 3 and other passages in Scripture, there is an angel who with a very Haman-like bent couldn't stand the fact that somebody wouldn't bow to him. Even if that one who wouldn't bow was the very God who made him. And since he can't hurt God... He comes after God's people in Genesis 3, right? And you have the fall of, of humankind. And what, you're, what we're told in Genesis 3 is God makes a promise. He's looking at the serpent and he says, there's going to be two lines throughout history. There's going to be the seed of the woman, Eve, through whom is going to come Jesus. So it's an amazing, actually, gospel picture in the first few pages of the Bible. Okay, you're going to have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And they're going to be at enmity with each other throughout all of history. So you, you see this between Cain and Abel. You see this between Pharaoh and the Israelites. Hey, you, you're seeing this here. Eventually you see it around 30 BC, or 30 AD, sorry, when Jesus was crucified. Okay, and round and round the merry-go-round merry we go. And so what we're seeing here with Haman, this is simply the most recent manifestation of Satan's hatred toward God's people. 
Okay, so that, that's what's going on here. That's opposition then, right? So the line of the serpent hating God's people always has, always will until Christ finally vanquishes them. So what in the world, how does that bridge to today? Okay, so what, what's important to realize is as you read Esther, then you see this hostility against the Jews. <clears throat> this is not an ethnic hatred. So anti-Semitism is real, it's evil, but that's not what's going on here in Esther. This is a spiritual hatred, right, that the line of the serpent always has toward God and toward those who, and, and toward those who align with him. And so how does that relate to today? Well, in the Old Testament, the people of God are the Jews, and then when Jesus comes, the family of God expands out to include not just Jew, but also Gentile, all nations as well. This is why Jesus says, go baptize disciples of, of all nations, right? And so the line from the Old Testament today isn't Jews in the Old Testament to Jews today. It's Jews in the Old Testament to anyone who's in Christ, Jew or Gentile, today. And what we need to be aware of is because of this and this enduring hostility is we need to be sober to the fact that there is a ancient, intelligent, real enemy. He hates Jesus. That's why he had him crucified. And if you follow Jesus, you'll be caught in his crosshairs as well. This is why in Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so when there's opposition to God's people, it's not just people being people. There's something much bigger going on here. Okay, and so this opposition to God's people, you could say today, it comes out, at least we're talking in our time, time and place, let's get, let's try to make this a little bit more relevant to where we are today, opposition of lion and the serpent toward God's people. It comes out, you could say, in two ways uh, today. And the first is overt opposition, we see. So here in our story, Haman is trying to kill the Jews. That's about overt as you can get. Right now, today in America, and I'm very grateful for this, in general, while in many places in the world, Christians are beheaded and imprisoned for their faith, here we're not killed. But you know what does happen? Is there's a silencing that happens. Right? And what is silence than just a silencing than just a less aggressive form of killing, right? Killing is just the most aggressive form of silencing. So, I mean, I imagine most of y'all can identify with this. So if you are talking with a friend or you're in your office and you make a statement to the effect of like, well, I believe in Jesus, they'll probably say something to the effect of like, good for you. But if you go further than that and you say something like what Jesus himself said, unless you repent and turn to Jesus in faith, there's no hope for you. Now what happens? Okay, you're bigoted. You're narrow-minded. Okay, not always, but often you'll be, you'll be silenced. And this isn't saying like, oh my gosh, you know, everyone out there, they're, they're so bad, we're so good. Just, this makes sense, okay? Especially where we live in a place where personal autonomy is prized and a Jesus who makes demands on you, that's provocative and offensive. Uh, not too long ago, I was talking with a friend of mine and we were talking about, and he, he like, very much does not believe. We're having this conversation. Toward the end, he goes, you know, okay, there are these points I haven't thought of before that make Christianity more reasonable than I once presumed. And he goes, so Steve, why don't I still believe? And then he goes, maybe I don't like submission. And I just thought that was so honest, you know, that he was willing to say that. 
I mean, apart from God intervening in our own hearts, none of us would believe as well because we all hate submission, right? And so when we see, I mean, Christians, I mean, canceling comes from both the right and the left, you know, in all kinds of circles. This isn't just uh, the spirit of the age that we're in. There's something much more ancient at work here. And so we just have to be sober to that fact. And so it can can just be helpful to remember that and that it's, it's normal, for people maybe to want to silence you when you speak. We have to use wisdom. Okay, how much do we keep talking if they do want to silence us? So that's the first way. It's just helpful to keep that in mind. It's, it's normal, um, but often we will be silenced. So that's the overt way I, th- I think we're opposed to today. But there's also covert ways that the line of the serpent opposes Christians, the people of God today, and because it's covert, it's more dangerous. And the way this happens is by getting us to adopt you could say Haman-like attitudes. Haman-like. So Haman had the same attitude as the serpent, which was a intense fixation on self. We're going to get to this uh, later on in the story. He's absolutely self-absorbed, and this will lead to his downfall. So was the serpent. And there are a couple ways where if Satan, and just by the way, we're talking about Satan a lot. If you're here and you're like, you guys actually believe in Satan, um, you're here exploring the faith, maybe we're not going to go into it now. We'd be happy to talk with you after about why we actually find it very reasonable uh, to believe in Satan. But anyway, where were we? Um, yes, intense fixation on self. So Satan can use that bent, right, to help us make us adopt Haman-like attitudes. And I think that there's two ways that'll play out, at least just keeping to the story and what we see here. Um, so the, the first thing we see is we can be tricked often subtly into adopting an attitude where we just want to distance ourselves from those who will place a burden on us. So see um, Haman here, he has a fantasy, he has a utopian mind of what the Persian Empire could look like. And the Jews are, they're, they're in the way, right? They're creating a burden for him, and so he wants to remove them. Well, there are many ways today where especially in, an, in a culture where personal autonomy is a god that we worship, being in relationships where people make demands on you is antithetical to personal autonomy, right? So just here, here are some examples. So, um, for example, this is not every couple's story, to be clear, but, I mean, the data is showing fewer and fewer younger couples are choosing to have children. And it's not a coincidence that, because children are demanding, <laughs> They place a demand, and it's not a coincidence that as there's a rise in a intense desire for personal autonomy, there's also a rise in an undesire to have children. Uh, this is another reason why we love to put the elderly away on the margins and just not really want to have to be around them and care for them. It's why we're perhaps the most commitment-phobic generation in history. Like, we hate to commit. We hate to commit to places, to churches, to people. You see it even as one reason why people are delaying marriage longer and longer. Or if you're in a marriage, okay, you just, over time, you distance yourself from your spouse because it's demanding to love a spouse. Actually, just on my way here, I mentioned I was at a coffee shop. There was a girl, a woman talking with her family, and there were a bunch of dogs walking around outside. And she goes, you know, if people cared for people in the same way they care for dogs, this world would be so much of a better place. You know, like how much money people spend on dogs, and, you know, is that because dogs are cute? Most, some dogs are cute. Yes, and I like dogs, okay? But no, dogs are a lot, dogs are demanding to a degree, but far less demanding than people. Okay, that's why it's so much easier to love a dog than to love people. They're really difficult. 
And just, as you think, you know, just where in your life maybe are you prone to, there may be, it may be relationships in your family, it may be within your own marriage, it might be in the church, where it's just, okay, this person, it's hard to love them, so I'm going to remove myself. And to add a little bit of levity to this, uh, earlier this year, I had an Android phone, and I stumbled across this tweet where it says, this guy, Mike Scott, says, in 2022, we're kicking the dude with the Android off the group text. We got enough going on. <laughs> like, if you know, you know. And I, I was like, oh, this is why so many of my friends who are iPhone users, you know, like, remo- they, they form their own group chat without me. Or they just, they would stop replying to my text messages because, right, an Android user is a burden to iPhone users because no one wants to see so-and-so liked, you know, your comment. And then I got an iPhone a few months <laughs> later. <laughs> And the, the struggle, the struggle is real, right? But so like, I mean, this is a more lighthearted, but they're like, right? We just love to remove ourselves from people or Android users that place demands on us, okay? So that's one way. Okay, let's, back to being serious, right? We're going to be tempted to adopt Haman-like attitudes. Another way Satan will tempt us to adopt Haman-like, uh, uh, Haman-like attitudes and therefore neutralize us is to get us to maybe on the one hand profess faith in Christ, but really when it comes to our day-to-day life of how our emotions are dictated and our priorities, we prioritize the values of the empire, right? So think about, and Haman's all in here with the empire. What are the values of the empire, right? We saw this more last week, but outward appearance, the praise of others, upward mobility, safety, sexual autonomy, financial abundance, Okay, not every item on that list is evil in and of itself, but if Satan can get you to make, I mean, and I mean, to be honest, of, of all of, you know, for us in the room, like, who doesn't have a deep desire for at least one of those things, you know, if not more? We can just be real about that, right? But if, if he can get us to a place, because he doesn't have to kill us, right? If he can just get us to a place where those are the main things we're chasing, and Jesus is just as helpful as he needs to be to chase those things, then he wins. And C.S. Lewis gets at this in his book, The Screwtape Letters, and The Screwtape Letters, it's a, it's a series of letters from a senior devil writing to a younger devil on how to tempt uh, Christians or keep people outside of the faith. And he talks about this idea of if you can find someone who's starting to get some prosperity, or i.e. empire priorities, it's pretty easy uh, to, to take the person out. So here, here's what he writes. And remember, this is a, this is a devil talking, so that's the, that's the perspective. Um, <clears throat> that's a play. So if his, i.e., you know, person, if his years prove prosperous, our position, the devil's position, is even stronger. Prosperity knits man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, you know, through approval, upward mobility, wealth, so forth, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his developing sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing work, build up in him a sense of really being at home in earth, which is just what we want. Whatever you do, keep your patient as safe as you possibly can. Uncle Screwtape. That hits home, doesn't it? And what we're going to see in the coming chapters is Esther, right now she's all in with the empire. You know, she, she's beautiful. She's got the looks. 
right? She's in a very sexualized environment. She's wealthy. She's going to have to make a choice. Do I stick with the priorities of the empire? Do I risk safety, maybe happiness, certainly my reputation by identifying with God and his people? And because she makes the choice that she does is why the rest of history pans out the way it does. Okay, so hopefully those are some ways that we need to be aware of, of how we'll be tempted, even though they're covert, so often hidden, right, and, and very sneaky. And so let's, in light of the fact that there is an intelligent enemy who doesn't want us to love and know and follow Jesus, how do we respond, especially as we consider the silent sovereignty of God? Okay, and so the first thing we need to do is we need to zoom out. So you can even maybe put yourself in a position, maybe there's somebody right now who's actively opposing you because of your faith, or maybe it's something not quite as specific to this passage, but maybe you're in in a job situation or a romantic situation or a family situation where you're just wondering, you're asking what we sung earlier, how long, how long until these tears are gone? Just to maybe help you out as 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 we're looking at this. So the situation for Esther and the Jews here looks bleak. Haman has all the cards. Esther doesn't have any meaningful power yet. But there is a glimmer of hope. And you see it in a few places. We'll just look at one. So look at verse 12 of chapter 3. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and blah, blah, blah. The, the edict goes out. What's key here is this happens on the 13th day of the first month. That is the, so this is the day before Passover, Okay, that great annual day of celebration when God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. So you can imagine the tragic irony if you're a Jewish person in the Persian Empire. Like, tomorrow we're supposed to be celebrating when God delivered us, but now I've just heard that all of us are going to, you know, my children, the people I love, we're all going to get wiped out 11 months from now. But to use a little bit of imagination, you can imagine some of them maybe saying, okay, this is what things look like right now, but what if we had the eyes of faith and, heart, and hearts of hope, that hope in God and his promises, and hoping that if God did it once before when things look really dark, he can do it again. And what we're going to see throughout the story is that's what God does. God uses everything. He even, you see, they, they cast uh, pur, let his lots in verse 7. He's even going to use how the, how the die were cast. He's going to use Haman's arrogance. He's going to use the fact that Mordecai hasn't been rewarded yet, right, for saving the king to indeed save his people. All right, and we know an even bigger story where when the line of the serpent had the most... <laughs> tempting opportunity possible to finally do what he had been wanting to do, to kill God himself. He did, and he sunk his teeth into Jesus, but to his horror, what he found when he did that is evil itself began to crack, and even death is now working backwards. And Jesus is using his death and resurrection to adopt us and make us sons and daughters of God. And so because we know the end of the story, this gives us greater stability today. Okay, so your, your life right now might feel like Esther 3 and 4. Okay, things just don't look like they're going to go well. And maybe, maybe a lot of your life will feel like Esther 3 and 4. I hope not. Right, but the greatest story that we're living in is there will be a day when he wipes all your tears away. And it's, it's a little bit like this. I mean, to use maybe a lighthearted, more lighthearted example, uh, when I was in college, I came back home and my older brother was watching a recorded lacrosse game. And this was 
before streaming and, you know, it was a VHS tape that he'd recorded on before, you know, streaming and smartphones and all the like. And I had watched this game. This was the NCAA finals. And my brother is, you could say, an, ex- an exuberant fellow. And so I'm there watching the game. And, you know, as his favorite team is losing in the fourth quarter, you know, every time the other team sc- scores, he's like, oh, you know, just jumping up and down, yelling at the TV. And I'm there just lounging on the couch, drinking my soda. And yeah, I, f- I feel a-, a pang when the team I don't like also scores. But what, but I know how the game's going to end. And it's, it's an amazing comeback where our favorite team ended up coming back and winning. Right? And so I was able to have a, a greater, yeah, there, there, there were some lows, there were, there were some highs, but since I knew how the game ended, right, I was able to not, you know, be going all over the place like my brother was. And so that's what we get invited to do. When we zoom out and see the whole story, it, it gives us more stability. And so in light of that, just real quickly, what are a few ways that we can then act uh, in light of that. So the first is to, uh, in light of God's silent sovereignty and him being present with you, is to pray for courage. Um, you know, I think one reason, especially, you know, our church's theme this year is witness. And I think for a lot of us, one reason why we don't share our faith is not because we're worried about, you know, getting a question we don't really know how to answer. I, I think it's a lack of courage, you know, especially when we know we're in an age where we're going to be silenced. And I was reading in Acts 3 this week, and it was so encouraging to me because the apostles were being silenced in Acts 3, right, by the authorities. And what the apostles did once they got out of prison is they, they prayed for boldness. And the reason why that's encouraging is because these are the apostles who saw the risen Jesus, who directly empowered them for ministry, <laughs> and they're scared to death, right? But they prayed for courage, and God gave it to them. And because they prayed for courage, we're now here today, Right, because the gospel kept going forward. So you, you can pray for courage when you know who's in charge. Next, we can have greater compassion. And here's what I mean by that. So we live, I think this is pretty clear, we live in an era where it is increasingly difficult to have conversations across difference and discussing things where, you know, you have completely opposite views from someone else. And one of the, maybe it's a crisis, uh, some people think it is, that we're facing as a liberal democracy is how in a liberal democracy... Do you tolerate opinions that are different than yours, which is a key tenet of liberal democracy? (laughs) But what we're seeing now is how do you tolerate a diversity of opinions when you abhor the opinions, right, that someone else holds? And one of the reasons why when people start to talk, whether it's on social media or on the Hill or where, where people are just losing their minds and going haywire is because if all your chips are in the here and now and on this earth and you don't know how the story ends, it makes sense for you to get frenetic, is you're talking about things that are, are very important. Okay, but because we know the end of the story, we don't be passive, but what we do is we can enter into these conversations seeing the humanity in the person we're talking with and, and show grace to them, because the only reason why we have eyes to see the gospel is because God in his mercy first opened our hearts to see and so we can also, in the midst of those, you know, heated emotional conversations, even if someone is hating you for your faith, or maybe it's just a, a social position you hold, or whatever it may be, you don't need to fight tit for tat, right? You can do like Peter tells us in um, his letter, right? When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. Okay, and, and then finally, what we can do, what can we do in light of God's sovereignty is we can just root out Haman-like attitudes. Um, this takes 
praying Psalm 139, you search me, O God, um, because you may be a, a bold witness, um, but if Satan can just get you to prioritize the values of the empire and make Jesus just a helpful buddy until you make it to heaven, it's just such a... Just don't believe the lie <laughs> that, well, it seems like those who live for themselves are the happiest, so I may as well do it as well. It's an ancient, intelligent lie. And you will see that because when Esther had a choice to align herself with empire or align herself with the way of the cross, and she chose the way of the cross, she saved an entire people. Through them, Jesus would come the greater Esther, and do the same thing on a more cosmic scale and give us adoption and security today. And so if he could use Esther, what can he do with you? So go and do likewise. Let's pray.